For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. This is the official start to the book of Daniel, which is the greatest collection of predictive prophecy in the history of the human race. That's right. I said that. The greatest collection of predictive prophecy in the history of the human race. New Testament prophecy refers to Daniel more than any other Old Testament book. This is why it's called the backbone of biblical prophecy, the key to prophetic revelation. Daniel contains more fulfilled prophecies than any other book in the Bible. In fact, if Daniel's prophecies were really written by a guy named Daniel in the 500s BC, there's only one rational conclusion. And that would be to drop to the floor and bow before the true one living God who is sovereign over history. That's how powerful the little book of Daniel is. And it's for that reason that Daniel has come under attack from skeptics more than any other book in the Bible. And if you think about it, what else can they possibly do with the hundreds of incredible prophecies in the book of Daniel? Option A, admit that God is real and that God foretold the future to Daniel in the 500s BC. Option B, God isn't real, but some really smart humans from the 500s BC predicted the future with 100% accuracy. <laughs> well, A, they don't really like because they don't believe that God is real. It's strange you have Bible scholars that don't believe in God. You'd think you'd pick like another line of work. <laughs> B, no humans could possibly predict the sorts of things that we're going to study over the next couple of months in Daniel. And so they've come up with option C. God isn't real, but some sneaky humans in the 150s BC wrote a book called Daniel, filled with hundreds of historical facts that they claimed were predictions, and then tricked everyone into thinking that this book was over 350 years old, and they even got the Jews to include it as scripture. <laughs> and you know, they had everyone fooled, and they would have gotten away with it too <laughs> if it weren't for those pesky modern scholars from the, the past 200 years that exposed the fraudulent ruse that was Daniel. Let me give you a couple reasons why I think the book of Daniel was written by Daniel in the 500s BC. And I'm not, I don't have time to really go much in depth into this. That's why we've got an 18-page article out at the counter by the cafe you can pick up if this is something you're really interested in. Number one, why do I think Daniel was written by Daniel in the 500s BC? Because it claims to be written by Daniel in the 500s BC. And we really shouldn't underestimate this point. You know, the author refers to himself in the first person as an eyewitness over a hundred times in this book. That would be a complete lie if it was written 375 years later. Nine times he says, I, Daniel. Five other times he says, and then he said to me, hey, Daniel. <laughs> also, he mentions Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon in the 500s BC, 31 times. Stories, episodes from Nebuchadnezzar's life. He also mentions King Belshazzar, who was the final ruler of Babylon eight times. And I just want to take a, a brief moment to do a little excursus on Belshazzar, because I think this is so interesting. Belshazzar. This is a guy who co-reigned with his father, King Nabonidus, for such a short time that he was forgotten by historians almost immediately. He was that unmemorable. 
even the Greek historians Herodotus, writing in 450 BC, and Xenophon, who died around 350 BC, they missed Belshazzar. They said Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. And what this did was this prompted skeptical scholar after skeptical scholar to say that this, this whole uh, Belshazzar, this is just a, a figment of some guy's imagination in the 150s BC. In fact, Ferdinand Herzig, in his famous book, Das Buch Daniel, <laughs> 1850, he wrote, Hertz, he wrote that Belshazzar was a figment of the writer's imagination, whoever wrote Daniel. Yeah, Herzig. Four years, Das Buch Daniel is not really a bestseller anymore, though. Because four years later, they started finding the Nabonidus cylinders. And on the, the Nabonidus cylinders, King Nabonidus refers to Belshazzar, my firstborn son. Well, these guys weren't convinced yet. Here's what uh, the rejoinder from H.F. Talbot, another 19th century German scholar. By 1874, he had written this. Oh, so Belshazzar, I'll admit... He had a son named Belshazzar. This proves nothing. He says, first of all, it's not an uncommon name. <laughs> Second of all, you know, he's like, some writers say he co-reigned with his father, Nabonidus, but there's not the slightest evidence in the inscription or elsewhere. He may have been a mere child when it was written. Well, as the tablets rolled in, Gleason Archer points out now 37 archival texts dated from the first to the 14th year of Nabonidus, now attest to Belshazzar's historicity that he did co-reign with Nabonidus, that he was second in the kingdom, not first, which is why in Daniel chapter five, he says, Daniel, if, for what you've done, I'm gonna make you third over all the kingdom of Babylon. Why third? Because his dad was one and he was two. So Daniel couldn't be higher than three. That's an eyewitness detail. Also, Nabonidus was captured when the, when the, when the Medes showed up to conquer Babylon. Uh, Belshazzar was killed. Just like Daniel says, Belshazzar was killed the night that the Medes came and took over the city. And so if Belshazzar's story was lost for 2,392 years, how could anyone other than an eyewitness know anything about him? You know, did the guy in 150 dig up the Nabonidus cylinder and then bury it <laughs> back where he found it? No, this is one of those things, you know, where sometimes you come across things in the Bible and you're like, Boy, we, we can't necessarily confirm this from archaeology. Maybe we should just throw the whole thing out. Now, I've sort of learned that there's been enough of these that I'm okay suspending judgment when it comes to small things like, did Belshazzar really exist? I'll give you another reason. Other biblical authors say this was written by Daniel. For example, his contemporary, Ezekiel, who wrote from Babylon in the 500s B.C., he references Daniel three times and extols his righteousness and his wisdom. In fact, Ezekiel 14, 14, he extols the righteousness of Noah and Daniel and Job. Noah and Job, two famous guys from, from a long time ago in the Bible, very righteous. And Daniel, his contemporary, he's saying Daniel's like one of the top three most godly dudes who's ever lived, is what Ezekiel says. Even skeptics date Ezekiel to the 500s. So how do they get around this? This seems like a big point for the Daniel camp. Well, here's what they say. They say, well, Noah and Job, these are the guys from the Bible. Daniel is not 
the guy who was in Babylon at the time, who was well known to the Jews. No, Daniel was obviously the ancient Canaanite hero who devoted his life to the worship of Baal and other pagan gods. That's their explanation for Ezekiel's reference to Daniel. You know, this is, this is so ridiculous. This would be, it'd be like me saying, look, your team couldn't beat us at basketball, even if you had LeBron, Kobe, and Jordan. And if I said that, you would know that I'm referring, of course, to LeBron James of the Cavs, Kobe Bryant from the Lakers, and Jordan Peters from my home church. <laughs> the great ones. <laughs> That's how bad you are at basketball. You could have all three of them and you still couldn't beat us. Okay, that is a complete misrepresentation of what Ezekiel or I would have said. It's not just Ezekiel. Jesus, for example, if you put any stock in, in his teaching, he claims, he, he cites a line from Daniel and he says, this was spoken of through the prophet Daniel. That says a lot in my book. I don't even have time to go into the ancient Jewish sources like the Maccabees and First Enoch from the 150s BC, like Josephus' Antiquities from the first century AD. Uh, time would fail if I tried to get into the syntax of Daniel's Aramaic. I'm sure you guys know all about this though, right? <laughs> you, know, you know that the Genesis Apocryphon from the Dead Sea Scrolls Cave 1 wasn't even discovered when the late date theories of Daniel were, were brought about. But of course, what we found from that document is that later Aramaic puts the verbs before the nouns. But early Aramaic, like Daniel, puts the nouns before the verbs. <laughs> what an elementary mistake of Aramaic syntax. Daniel's Aramaic couldn't have been from the, the, the second century BC. It had to have been much earlier, like when it claims to be written. All right, the point is, if you want more on the authenticity of Daniel, pick up a copy of this Archer article from his survey of Old Testament introduction if you really want to go much deeper into this Aramaic syntax. But if you're satisfied, well, even if you're not, we're going to have to move on. <laughs> tonight, we're going to meet Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to learn how he ended up in Babylon, and we're going to see the first big test of his faith. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. During the third year, of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. What is this event that Daniel is referring to? Well, Daniel says Nebuchadnezzar first conquered Jerusalem in 605 BC. There were actually a couple of different times he moved in, conquered the Jews, and took exiles back to Babylon. This is the first. This is the earliest one of these. And again, I'm just going to take a moment and point out that scholars... Like S.R. Driver out of Oxford said, this first invasion never happened. You can check out his intro to the literature of the Old Testament from 1925 and see him cast just scoffing at what Daniel's saying. He's like, this didn't happen until several years later. Well, 31 years after his publication, a cuneiform tablet was discovered stating that Nebuchadnezzar did indeed conquer all of Palestine after the battle of Carchemish in Egypt in the spring of 605 BC. Yet another confirmation, satisfying confirmation of the biblical account. Another point in the Daniel column. This is real stuff, okay? I'm bringing these up because I want you guys to know that whether this really happened matters. Biblical faith is rooted in history. God is the God of history. 
And so in 605 BC, there was this prophet named Jeremiah who had been preaching on the streets of Jerusalem, pleading with the people of Jerusalem for 22 years at this point. We've got 52 chapters of Jeremiah's teaching preserved for us in our Bibles. And he was pleading with them, warning them. He says, look, God is going to hand you over to Babylon unless you turn back to him. He was warning them he's not going to keep protecting you like he has up until now. But the people, they didn't want to listen to Jeremiah. There were prophets going throughout that city saying, oh, don't listen to Jeremiah. God, we're going to be fine. They're preaching a message of peace. Well, Daniel would have been living in Jerusalem. He would have grown up under the preaching of Jeremiah. He's in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar captures the city, when he surrounds it by siege. And so he would have heard Jeremiah's teaching. You know, he was only about 14 years old at this time. Imagine him sitting under the preaching of the prophet Jeremiah. But you know, Daniel, he's a 14-year-old boy when the events of our chapter tonight take place. I mean, that's, that's like a freshman in high school. It's a very strange time in a boy's life. <laughs> Guys, do you remember what your life was like when you were 14 years old? Girls, do you remember what freshman boys are like? <laughs> Have you seen one recently? They're very strange creatures. You, you sort of forget what they're like until you see them and you're like, whoa. You know, was he, was he in the midst of puberty? Was he, was he hoping he would hit puberty like some of us when we were 14? <laughs> was he into girls? Was he, was he wondering what's going to become of my life? One, one thing we do know. Even though Jeremiah says there were no godly men in Jerusalem at this time, there must have been some godly women because, because Daniel, he knew some things about God. By this point in his life, he, he would have been a man of faith. He would have heard the prophet Jeremiah. He would have seen the suffering of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was captured and locked up, thrown in prison multiple times. He heard the warnings. He could have read the scriptures that Jeremiah was quoting. He would, have been, he would have been trained pretty well. He would have had pretty good education, actually, Daniel would. One day, though, he saw Jeremiah's predictions come true. Imagine that day. Again, you're a 14-year-old boy, and then you see the mighty army of Babylon appear on the horizon, swarming like locusts up to your city as everybody flees to, to get inside the city gates, to shut the gates. They surround the city. They're like, they're like a plague of locusts consuming everything in sight. To live under siege for, it must not have been a very long time. Still wouldn't have been pleasant before they, they surrendered. They must have surrendered or broken through. You know, some prophets were predicting peace, but Jeremiah predicted 70 years in Babylon, and Jeremiah was right. It says, The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Now, why'd they do that? Well, back then, if my army lost to your army, it meant that my gods had lost to your gods. And that was seen as proof positive that my God is better than your God or that your God is no God at all. And so he's taking these objects from the temple in Jerusalem back to put them in the temple of Bel and Nebo, 
the gods of Babylon. And this was almost sort of like a, a trophy room from the gods that Bel and Nebo and the others had conquered. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. These are the guys that lost it, probably. <laughs> we, we know it was there before this time and it's not there after this time. So who knows where it went? But, you know, they, they took these back and they took them back to Babylonia. And many would have been wondering, where was God when we needed him? Many would have been doubting God. They go through suffering and they're like, God, how could you let this happen? We trusted you. We believed in you. We thought you were the most powerful in here. Does this mean that, that you're a nobody? Well, Daniel sees God's hand at work in their defeat and captivity. Daniel doesn't say, our God's lost to their God's. He says, no, Nebuchadnezzar won because the Lord gave him victory. He took those objects from the temple because God let him do it. God permitted him to do it, he says in verse 2. How did he know that? He had, a, he had a theological view. He had God's perspective on this suffering. He'd heard what, Daniel been, heard what Jeremiah had been saying. He had read the scriptures where God said, look, your security depends upon your faithfulness to me. And if, if you just trust me, I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. But if you won't, then you're on your own. Daniel knew that's what had happened. This was not a sign that God had failed them. It was a sign that they had failed God. He's teaching them a lesson about faithfulness. One thing we see is that once the Jews come back from captivity, you never see them falling back into idol worship again. You know, just like, like any parent of a toddler would give their kid a time out to teach them to listen, God is saying to his people, you guys are in time out in Babylon for 70 years. And it's, gonna, it's actually going to work. It's going to teach them something, and they're going to be a whole lot more faithful to his word after they go back at the end of the 500s BC. But Daniel sees this. He, he's got a sharp perspective on this, and I bet he saw it this way at the time as well. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, he said, I want you to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. And so we see Daniel is writing these events not as a passive observer, but as one of the guys who was captured by Nebuchadnezzar and marched back to Babylon during this time. Apparently he was part of the royal family or some of the nobles there at least, which would have meant he would have had really good education. He would have learned his, the scriptures. He would have learned the Torah and, and the prophets and the Psalms. He would have been well-educated in all the learning of the, of the Hebrews. And he is one of the ones that was brought back to Babylon. So these boys, they were torn from their families. They were marched back to Babylon in a way that would have been about as humiliating as possible. You can guarantee that. You know, sometimes they were, they were stripped naked, chained to one another, and marched the several hundred mile journey all the way up around the Fertile Crescent through the desert to the ancient, um, amazing city of Babylon. In fact, what they would have seen when they marched into Babylon would have dwarfed anything that they had ever seen in their lives. They thought Jerusalem was pretty sweet. They thought their temple was pretty sweet. Well, they hadn't seen nothing yet. And you can imagine these guys that with all that time to think, following the prisoner in front of them, where is God? What has happened? What am I to make of all this? They would have been completely disoriented. 
All of their hopes had been shattered that God was going to protect them. And then they marched through the desert and this glorious city appears on the horizon. You know, after hundreds of miles of nothingness, in the distance, the lights and the city and the towers of Babylon begin to rise. Some of the buildings here would have been almost 300 feet tall. That's, about, that's almost as tall as some of the buildings in downtown Columbus. You know, this would have been sort of a, a reconstruction, an aerial view of the city of ancient Babylon. This was one of the gates. This is the Ishtar Gate. They've actually uh, reconstructed this in the Berlin Museum, and there's another replica of it in Iraq today. But, you know, to march up to something like this is just one of the many gates around the city. 14 miles of walls around this city. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was built by Nebuchadnezzar for his wife because she was from the mountains and uh, she didn't really like the flat desert, so he basically built a mountain for her. <laughs> uh, people don't even really know what this looked like. This is from the game Seven Wonders. <laughs> by the way, this is my third Seven Wonders picture this year that I've been able to show at CT. So I'm sort of proud of that. But, you know, the science, the technology, the wealth of Babylon, just astounding to these, these Hebrew youths. John Lennox, in his book on Daniel Against the Flow, says two things must have simultaneously struck Daniel and his friends about Babylon. The first was the sheer elegance of the architecture and the advanced state to which learning had been brought. The second was the fact that idolatry permeated the whole society to almost an unbelievable degree. Gods all over the place, the main Gates were named after them, and there were temples galore, over a thousand at that time. What a disconnect between what they'd been taught and then to see. It's almost like they've come to the big leagues now. They would have been disoriented. They would have been open to new ideas at this point, with all their hopes shattered, and with the Babylonians moving in then to build up these young men, to build them up in the ways of Babylon. That's exactly why they're being chosen. He says, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. So he says, we've marched back their youth. And the youth, you know, they were, they were young enough that they could still be indoctrinated, but they were still old enough to be Jews. You know, the 13, 14, 15-year-olds, they'd already been raised, and they'd even had the right in, you know, of passage into manhood that happened to, to Jewish men at the age of 13. But they were still young enough that they could, they could be fully Babylonian. And so what they would do is they would take these guys and they would teach them all the ways of Babylon, including not just the, the literature and the science, but also the religion, because astrology and religion were intertwined with all of the other learning. And they would either keep them there in Babylon as ambassadors, or they would send them back to the conquered country as rulers, knowing that they would be accepted by the people as as indigenous, but they also would be indoctrinated by the Babylonians. And so it's a good way to keep your territories under control. It's pretty smart. He said, make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning and gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. He says, I want you to go and get me the best of the best freshman boys <laughs> in this class of, of, of prisoners we've just brought home. Healthy, strong, good-looking, smart and the kind of people that we can use in royal service here. And he says, I want you, Ashpenaz, to train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. 
including the religion and the astrology of Babylon. Make them Babylonian Jews. And the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchen. So he's going to wine and dine these men. <laughs> he's saying, look at, look at all that Babylon has to offer. You didn't have any of this back in Jerusalem. And of course, you know, religion and food were closely related. They would toast to the gods before drinking the wine like we see in Daniel 5. The, the meat would have been sacrificed to idols right before his eyes and then served to them. And they're saying... You're in the big leagues. You had nothing like this in Jerusalem. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. That's when they would get their commissioning. They're in boot camp right now. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. So he, he, he kind of narrows in on four guys. There were a lot of, a lot of others, apparently, that came along. These are the four, only four guys we're going to hear about. The chief of staff then renamed them with these Babylonian names. They said, oh, your Hebrew name isn't going to work anymore. You guys are Babylonian now. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Daniel means God is my judge. And they're like, really? Then why do we defeat your God? How about this name, sir? May Bel protect his life. So no longer is, is your name, God is my judge. Now, may Bell protect your life. You are a worshiper of Bell. They're attacking their very identity. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Shadrach means under the command of Aku, one of their gods. Mishael was called Meshach. Mishael means who is like God. Meshach, well, that's easy. Who is like Aku? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I have no idea. Finally, Azariah, which means the Lord has helped. God is my help. You'll be called Abednego, servant of Nego, servant of Nego. And so the year these boys turned 14, what happened in their lives? They're battered by ancient war, surrounded by siege, by the greatest the greatest world ruler that the world had seen by then and the greatest empire the world had seen by then. They were torn from their families. Perhaps they saw their families killed right before their very eyes. We never hear anything else about Daniel's family. They were taken as POWs, marched naked across the desert to the greatest city in the, in the world at that time, the city of Babylon. They were humiliated, jeered at upon entrance, meanwhile astounded by the grandeur of Babylonian culture and religion, indoctrinated by the elite, just pounded by the, the most powerful scholars of that day with a program of Babylonian indoctrination, wined and dined. They, were, they offered them any, any wealth, any pleasure, that they could possibly want, and they renamed them, attacking their very identity. This was truly an all-out assault on their very souls, their family, their health, their religion, their name. Everything is under attack, and they're trying to rewrite a new identity. You know, this, this is enough current to sweep anyone away. It's almost like these, this boy, these boys were dropped into the middle of the raging Euphrates River. And they would be swept away. You know, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 should be these guys' spiritual epitaph. 
This should be the last we ever hear of these guys before they go off and become good Babylonians for the rest of their lives. Before they're swept away by this Babylonian world system. And in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, we see two unbelievable words after reading verses 1 through 7. It says, but Daniel. And we find things taking a very unexpected turn of events that changed this from being their spiritual epitaph to the first chapter in one of the greatest lives for God that's ever been lived. A life lived in the darkest time, perhaps, in the history of God's people, where God would reveal his most astounding prophecies at a time when his people needed it the most. And the guy he picked was Daniel because of the stand that he took. We see this 14-year-old boy dropped in the middle of a raging river, and instead of being swept away, he plants his feet and turns around the other direction. And not only does he resist the tide, but he takes step after step after step for the rest of his life, at least 70 more years, resisting the culture that was so powerfully ripping at him to pull him away. This is why we need to study Daniel's life. Because whether you realize it or not, you've been dropped into a rushing river that sweeps most people away. Did you know that? Most people don't even notice it because they're floating along with the current. You ever do one of those lazy rivers at the water amusement parks? You don't realize how strong the current is until you stop and try to resist the current. And you either get pulled by the current or you get blasted by an eight-year-old on an inner tube. <laughs> but either way, there's so much coming that direction. It's hard to not go that direction, but going that direction is the easiest thing in the world. What does the current look like in our culture? I'll just name a couple. You ask people today, is there such a thing as truth? What would 19 out of 20 people, if you interviewed on the street, say to that? They'd be like, no, whatever's true is true for you. You make your own truth. Really? So you think, you think 19 out of 20 people just researched postmodernism, read the literature, and then came to the conclusion, the exact same conclusion, all 19 of them? Whatever's true for you is true for you? Or is it possible they're just floating with the current? They're just absorbing their values from the people around them. You know, there's something sort of comforting. There's something sort of relaxing about just floating with the current. You know, sheep, they sort of like to be in the flock with other sheep. You know, there's a herd mentality. That there's, something, there's something relaxing to sheep about seeing that little sheepy tail right in front of their eyes just wiggling away. And some people are like that. They, they, don't, they, they feel like, well, if I'm just doing, if I'm believing what everyone else is believing, I must be okay, right? Majority must rule in this situation. You don't realize how, how strong the current is until you try to stand in it, until you become the one out of 20. And then you realize just how much pressure there is to conform to this view that whatever's true for you is true for you. I do think it's sort of ironic that all these postmodernists are outraged at these fake news uh, outlets and they're critiquing. They're like, you can't just make up your own truth. Isn't that the essence of what postmodernism has been teaching? It, they don't have any basis for criticizing it. As a Christian, though, who believes in truth, 
We have, criticized, we have, we have basis for, for criticizing all forms of non-truth and relativism. Are there many valid ways to God? Ask 20 people on the street, you'll probably get 19. Yes, there are. There are many ways to the top. Whatever's true for you is true for you. Whatever's the right way to God for you is the right way for you. All right. And then you're like, well, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So I think Jesus is the only way to God. And they're like, you can't say that. Your way is not valid. <laughs> Wait, so every way is valid except for my way? It actually sounds like your way is the only way that's valid. Why, why do you get to make up the rules? Why do you get to make the only valid way? It seems sort of intolerant, doesn't it? No, you, you become the one out of 20 that says Jesus is the way, the only way, like he claimed. And all of a sudden you realize how strong the current is. What about this one? Should my pursuit of God ever take top priority in my life? People are like, no, I mean, religion is nice if it makes you feel good, but you better not let that get in the way of the important things like your career and making money and accumulating possessions and trying to get as much pleasure as possible and never having to suffer at all. And if your pursuit of God ever, ever puts a damper on any of those things, well, you'll, you'll feel the, the strength of the current if you decide to be the one in 20 on this one. 19 out of 20 people are going as hard as they can for everything this world has to offer. And it's only a rare person. You know, even some Christians are just living for this world. It's a rare person that will stand up and will choose a different way, the way of Christ, the way of guys like Daniel. Yeah, you just can't feel the strength of the current until you try to resist it. And this is what Daniel does. You know, the Bible offers a different way. It says, don't be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You don't just have to be another sheep in the herd, in the flock. You don't just have to float down that river. You can, you can put your feet down and take a stand. You can learn to think outside the box, not just absorbing your views from the people around you, but actually thinking through a worldview and its implications. And yeah, some Christians, they're not thinkers, and I think that's pitiful. But God is a God of truth. And we follow this not just because it makes us feel a certain way. Some Christians, they're just, they're just trying to find out what makes me feel good. And does this resonate with me? And if it does, I'll follow God. Have you ever considered following God because it's the right thing to do? Because it's true. And it's when you build your life on these rock-solid convictions and plant your feet on the rock and sink your, your roots down into it, that's when you start to really stand out and make a difference and stand against the current. We need to pay attention to how Daniel resists the powerful current of his culture. We're going to learn a few things about that tonight as we read through the last several verses of this chapter. It says, in spite of everything going against him, Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given them by the king. And so where does Daniel start in resisting the current of his culture? He had convictions. He developed convictions. It didn't start by action. It started with something internal, something in here. It was the choice of the mind, of the heart. 
Where did he get his convictions? I think one of the best places to get convictions is the Word of God, and you can bet that's where Daniel got his from. How do we know that? Well, for one, he had God's perspective on his suffering. We saw back in verse 2. If he didn't have that, he never would have resisted the humiliating hundreds of mile trek from Jerusalem to Babylon. He would have lost his faith along with the other guys who were taken captive with him, pretty much all of them. But he also knew the food would defile him. How did he know that? Because he'd been reading his word. He knew, for one, the meat they were going to eat had, not, had almost certainly not been prepared with attention to the, the meat preparation requirements in the dietary laws of the Old Testament. They had, they had food laws back then for the Jews. And he's like, there's, there's, I'm betting that they didn't follow Leviticus when they, when they slaughtered this animal for us. <laughs> also, the meat would have been dedicated right before his very eyes in some sort of a sacrifice before it was served to them. And so both how the meat was prepared and also how it was dedicated, he just knew, I, I can't do this. This would, this, would, this would be tacitly throwing in with them. And also, I might be violating God's laws anyway. The wine... You know, they didn't have food laws about wine, but, you know, we've seen Daniel 5. There's a toast to the gods of Babylon before they drink it. And so Daniel's like, I just can't do this. And so he decided. And, you know, convictions don't come easily. He really, I'm sure, had to think about this. If we underestimate how hard it's going to be, you're not going to make it. You you don't lightly enter into something like this. No, he thought about what he was was definitely not going to do before he thought about how he was going to do it. And so... You know, maybe you need to get before the Lord and tell him, I don't want to be conformed. Maybe you need to devote some time, try to develop a habit of reading God's word every day, reading books that take you deeper into his word too, for deeper study. So you really learn your word so you can have the kind of convictions. You know, God's word, that's the, the light for our feet and the lamp for our path. That's going to bring us back, back into a countercultural, transcultural position. And then, once he'd made up his mind, he starts not with a protest. He doesn't chain himself to one of the pillars, start chanting, hell no, we won't go. (laughs) No, he starts with a a simple conversation with Ashpenaz, the chief of staff we met earlier. And he asked if he could just have permission not to eat these foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. Daniel. So Daniel must have been pretty winsome. You know, he's, he's the kind of guy who was likable. If you're going to make it in Babylon, you're going to need to be winsome. You're going to need to learn how to be respectful with people in authority over you. Um, you know, I wish more Christians were like this. You know, Daniel's the kind of guy where he's going to be like, I can't say yes to this, but I really want to, all right? I'm sort of caught between you, who I like, and Nebuchadnezzar, who could kill me. And that's what he says. He says in verse 10, look, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who's ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. And that was not a, that was not a crazy fear. Nebuchadnezzar did this sort of thing. And so we've already seen he's winsome, he's hardworking, Daniel is. He's the kind of guy who Ashpenaz really wants to say yes to, even though he just can't. We've also seen Daniel request an exemption. 
Maybe this has application for you. Is there an authority figure in your life who's calling you to do something that's against your convictions that you've developed? That was number one, developing convictions. You know, maybe it's a boss, a professor, perhaps a, um, a parent, someone else who's calling on you to do something that you don't feel comfortable doing. Uh, have you tried request, respectfully requesting an exemption? Have you tried asking? Some people are too afraid to do that. Have you put in the, the groundwork to become a winsome person, a likable person with that authority figure? I see another one here too. He links up with like-minded friends. That's another practical step. Remember back in verse eight, it said Daniel resolved in his own mind he's not gonna do this. But by verse 10, what is Ashpenaz saying? He's ordered that you all, this is the plural you, he's saying, eat this food and wine. He says, if you guys become pale and thin compared with the other youths of your age, I'm afraid I'll be beheaded. And so suddenly it's not just Daniel who's making the request. Sometime between his conviction and his request, he found some other guys who are on the same page with him. The three guys we met earlier who got renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you're going to make it in Babylon, if you're going to resist the current, you better find some like-minded friends to link up with. You know, your convictions, you might find other people with those convictions. You might be able to lead other people into the same convictions. You know, most of the people that went to Babylon with him, looks like they lost their faith. We never hear anything about them. But they weren't too worried about that. These guys banded together and they resisted an empire. But even with all that, Ashpenaz still says no. So what does Daniel do? Does he just give up? No. He goes to a next step. He didn't get permission, but he got information, and he's going to do something with this information. He doesn't give up. He comes up with a creative solution, namely asking somebody else, but framing the question a little bit differently. If you're going to make it in Babylon, you better not be the kind of person that gives up easily. You better learn to think creatively. You better learn to ask somebody else. Persistence, perseverance. It's not going to be easy. Well, Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff. So not Ashpenaz, but the guy under him. That guy was the one specifically in charge of handing out their food. And so he goes to him and he says, look, guys, look, dude, how about a test? Ten days. You give us a diet of vegetables and water. We don't want this this sacred meat, this magic meat that they're giving us that's been offered to these idols. We don't want the sacred wine. He's like, look, you can keep that stuff. Just give us vegetables and water. I mean, you, you can have our meat and wine. Nobody has to know. It's low risk for you. And at the end of the 10 days, let's just see how we look. What do you think? compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Didn't make your decision in light of what you see. You know, you might actually, this might be a good career move for you. If we're looking better, they might be thinking this, this attendant over these four guys is a pretty good guy. And so the attendant agreed and he tested them for 10 days. So they go all vegan for 10 days. <laughs> Not for the health reasons necessarily, but for religious reasons. And at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his 
three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. So the attendant kept the meat and the wine probably for himself, I guess. I don't know what he did. And Daniel got some vegetables and water. And God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And so these guys, they were soaking up the Babylonian lessons. You know, they, you know the, the science, the literature... The religion even, they weren't practicing the religion, but they were understanding the religion. They were learning probably to critique the religion. They knew Babylonian thinking better than the Babylonians did. And that's what we need to be as Christians. We need to know the thinking of this world, not just as well as, but even better than the people who hold to those worldviews. We need to have a thoughtful critique of those. We need to be able to point those, that critique out in a winsome way and to show them where that really falls short and doesn't hold up in everyday life. That's what these guys did. This is what Christians need more of. In addition, he gave Daniel a special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams, which is going to be used throughout the book of Daniel. That's going to become very important. And when the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him so much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the royal service. And whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. So these are, these are four 17-year-old boys, and the most powerful man in the world is finding them more capable, more intelligent than his closest advisors. Think how, think how galling that would have been to the king's advisors. I mean, imagine today. I mean, that, that's as ridiculous as saying, you know, the most powerful man in America, Donald Trump. Imagine that four 17-year-olds were more intelligent wiser, sharper than the group of, of brilliant geniuses that he has surrounding him and advising him. That, that's, how, that's how crazy this would have been. <laughs> and so Daniel puts a nice little epilogue on this chapter. It says he remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Why did he stick that verse on there? This is 70 years later. Daniel says, Babylon was the most powerful empire in the world. King Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful emperor the world had ever seen. But you know, what? You know who was still standing 70 years later? Babylon was gone, conquered by the Medes, just like God said it would be. Nebuchadnezzar had been dead for 25 years, but God was still on his throne. You know who else was still there? He says, me, Daniel. <laughs> and I bet he was glad he didn't throw him with Babylon at that point. He knew it was passing away. He knew it was temporary. He'd have been in bad shape if you'd thrown him with Babylon at that point. And the same is true for us. You know, you can throw him with this world. You can, you can jump in with the current. But if you do that, you're going to regret it people that threw him with Babylon would have regretted it when Babylon fell. And scripture says one day they will call out fallen, fallen is mighty Babylon the great, the symbol for this world system. 
It tries to distract us from God. And at that point, a lot of people are going to regret that they threw in with this current. They're going to realize the current was rushing so rapidly because it was headed toward a waterfall. One day God's going to peel back the veil of this world system and you're going to be standing face to face with him. And at the feet of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The time to get right with Christ is now. Not by doing good works, but by accepting his good works done on your behalf. Accepting his offering, his sacrifice for your sins. And that's really your move tonight. That's your first decision. Will you get right with God? A second decision is you need to decide if you want to be conformed or transformed. If you want conformity, you can basically do nothing because that's the default position. You can float along with the current and take comfort from that little waggling, wiggling sheep tail right in front of you, going the same direction as everyone else and, and patting yourself on the back because of that. But if you want to plant your feet and turn around and walk upstream, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to tell the Lord, that's what I want. And you're going to have to let him transform the way that you think. It's not something you could do on your own. And finally, Another decision you can make is to decide to come back and study the book of Daniel with us over the next two months. All right, let's pray. Yeah, I pray that we learn the lesson of faithfulness here, Lord. I pray that you would give us true convictions and that we would be willing to dig into your word enough to get those convictions. I pray that we would not be Christians who are, who are vacuous, but that we'd be thinkers, that we would understand not just what you teach, but also what the, what the other side teaches and what's wrong with it and have a thoughtful, winsome critique. And Lord, I pray, um, I pray for anybody here who's never come into a relationship with you as well. Maybe they're sitting here tonight and thought that Christians were not thinkers, that they had to shut off their brains to come to Christ. I pray that that person would see that that's not the case at all. That's exactly the opposite. Coming to Christ is what helps us to really start thinking outside the box, to think thoughtfully and critically, because we'll have the mind of Christ then. And I pray they would come into a relationship with Him. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.